Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Since everything you have is already passing away, why hold on to it? Since you can't control the weather, why worry about it? Since everything you do is vanishing breath, why not do it? Yes, it's true, you can't add a single hour to your lifespan by worrying. But take a look at the bright side. If God cares for the prairie grass of Minnesota's rolling plains, which today is alive and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he care for you, O ye of little faith? Yes, all is still vanity for both the preacher and the Gospel of Matthew, but don't worry, you can still become famous for scrubbing toilets. Richard and I discuss Ecclesiastes chapter 11. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 81 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Richard, I received feedback from some of our listeners that Ecclesiastes is dragging on and they want to know when we're going to put them out of their misery. But as you were just saying a few moments ago, that's not up to us, is it? No, the text is putting us precisely where it wants us to be. And if you feel frustrated with a text, it may not be you. It may be the text. The text may be a frustrating text. And you may be playing right into the hands of the text. It's trying to manipulate you and put you in a certain position. And this is where we're left. We're left understanding that life is vanity. All right, all right, I get it. All right, right, I get there's no hope. Okay, fine. There's nothing. There's nothing to hope for. This is really a buzzkill. I wish we could do something with this that would make me feel a little bit better. We're on chapter 11. So if anyone wants to know how long it's going to take for Ecclesiastes to put us out of our misery once and for all, my suggestion is pick up a Bible and find out how many chapters are left. We're not going to tell you on the <laughs> on the show. If you can't find Ecclesiastes in the Bible, consider this your test or your exam for episode 81 of our podcast. So I do think that the text is putting you in a particular frame of mind. It's beating you down, and we, we've talked about this. And I think it's objective, like so many stories in the Bible, is to put you in the frame of mind that the human being finds himself in when he's dying. When I think about the attitude of generosity that chapter 11 seems to be cultivating, it actually reminds me again of my own father's death, which is what set us off on this series on the podcast. And what I remember about his death is this overwhelming sense of generosity and gratitude realizing that everything is coming to an end and realizing in a way that your attitude towards God is one of thanksgiving and you're at peace with what's happening and all you want to do is reach out to people around you and express your love and appreciation. That desire to express that love and appreciation is, at least in the case of my father, it was manifest as generosity. I'm reading a book right now, The Silent Angel by Heinrich Bohr, and it's about Germany right after World War II when it's completely destroyed. 
And he was not able to sell this book in the 50s when he wrote it because people were not ready. People had lived through this horrible time of war and they weren't ready to read a book about the horrible times of war. They wanted some moment of light and not think about the war. This book was understood to be a classic once it was published after his death, but the people at the time couldn't stand to see the darkness because they lived through so much darkness. And I think Ecclesiastes sucks the oxygen away from us because it's always confronting us with the darkness and the light of life all the time in whatever situation we're in. I think this question of generosity that is blind to one's attitude toward the other just generosity for generosity's sake. I think it's a question that we face all of the time in Minnesota when we stop at exit ramps in the cities. In different areas of the U.S., the homeless have different accepted norms for approaching people for donations. And in Minnesota, in the Twin Cities area, typically a homeless person will stand at a freeway exit with a sign. And each time you pull up to that exit and you're in the uncomfortable position of being in the left lane at a red light, you have to decide whether to reach into your pocket and give money to that person. And I think that's a very difficult burden emotionally and psychologically. People struggle with the feeling of shame. And one of the ways people alleviate that shame is by telling themselves stories about how that person doesn't want to work or they're just going to use the money for drugs or whatever. But I think the attitude about generosity in chapter 11 of this text foregoes all of that because it's brought you to this point where all of your reasonings and all of your schemings and all of your justifications are all vanity. So at the end of the day, you have money. This person is asking for money. What does it matter why they're asking? Just give. It's a beautiful biblical impulse. I heard a talk one time by the head of a men's shelter in Wisconsin, and one of the students asked him, when you see someone who is asking for money, do you give or do you not give? And this man, who himself was homeless at one point, said, look, you can either give or not give. Just don't have any expectations of them. Just give completely or don't give at all. Don't give in order to manipulate this person or the universe in one direction or the other, but give just because it's time to give, like we were saying before, when it's time to work, when it's time to do, you just do 100% and then you let it go. And when it's time to eat, when it's time to drink, you eat and you drink and you make it very simple. Cast thy bread in verse one, cast thy bread upon the waters for thou shalt find it after many days. I think that's what we were just talking about. You pull up to that red light, you're in the left lane, you've got bread, someone else is saying they're hungry, just give them some bread. I can see where some people really feel like chapter one expresses a similar attitude to that of the tradition or the teaching of karma and Buddhism. You send this generosity out into the world, you cast your bread upon the waters, it will find you after some time, so just give it away. It puts you in the position not just of giver, but as a potential receiver. If we saw that person on the side of the road not as a needy person, but as me, my child, my mother, well, my mother, she's a you know middle-class, upper-middle-class woman. She's never going to be on the side of the road asking for food, asking for money. You know, I've got a good job. I'm in a good position. I would never see myself as that person. I need to give to those people. But in this verse, it says, you may find it after many days. You're not guaranteed to be in the position you're in for the rest of your life. You yourself may be on the side of the road. And maybe the generosity you show one day may be returned to you when you need it. I don't think 
verse one is saying give so that you can get back. It's not talking about reciprocity. Reciprocity is a form of selfishness. I think you give with no expectation of getting anything in return. The preacher is saying you put something out into the world, it comes back to you in one form or another, but it's not a one-for-one contractual scenario. It's more about letting go and trusting that if God adorns and takes care of the lilies of the field, why wouldn't he take care of you in the end? What are you worried about? That's the mentality of verse one. It's kind of a carefree giving in to life because all is vanity anyways. You're passing away. You have no control. So what is it you're clinging to? Give a portion to seven, yea, even unto eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. Just give it away. You don't know what's going to happen. Give it all away. What are you saving it for? Right. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. If a tree falls toward the south or toward the north and the place where the tree fell, there it shall be. You have no control over things. Things are what they are. And when is it going to rain? When it's time for rain. We can look at the weather forecast and see what the percent chance of rain is going to be. But if it rains, it rains. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Both of these verses are encouraging one to give up the illusion of control. I mean, he that observes the wind shall not sow, and he that regards the clouds shall not reap. This is the anti-fear verse. You're worried about what the weather is. You're worried about whether it's going to be too windy for your crop or whether you're going to have enough rain or whatever. You can spend time worrying about those things, or you can actually get out there and sow the seed and till the ground and work the farm. What's the work that needs to be done now? There's a time for looking at the weather report, but you spend too much time on the weather report, nothing ever gets planted. This agrarian metaphor of sowing seed becomes really important in the New Testament. It gets expanded and built upon, and obviously it's applied specifically to the act of preaching the Bible, preaching the gospel, preaching God's word. And taken in that context, the way that the New Testament frames it or uses it or co-opts this metaphor, it becomes even more imperative that we don't think about what we are achieving in teaching scripture. It's immaterial. We don't look to see how many people are interested in what we're doing or how many numbers we're attracting or whether people even take the Bible seriously anymore. All of that is immaterial. That's all observing the wind and regarding the clouds. This chapter is encouraging us to give up any illusion of control we might have. And what you're saying is exactly that. Oh, if I tweak the way that I speak, if I tweak my keywords, then I can maybe get more people to do this or that. And this is the way that I try to hold on to the levers of power of the universe so that things can maybe go my way, that they can go the way that I want them to go. It's like Father Paul Tarazzi used to always say in class, the seed contains all of the instructions necessary. It contains everything it needs to produce a tree or to produce a plant. Everything is contained in the seed and you have no control over the seed. You just go out and sow the seed. And no matter where it lands, it's going to do what it's going to do. It's not about the soil and it's not about the weather. It's about the seed. And if the seed doesn't produce something somewhere else, it just means you have to keep sowing. This, I think, is a very powerful wisdom that is inaccessible to us in our modern urban cultures because we don't feel as much at the mercy 
of Mother Nature as we actually are. It's not that we're not at her mercy, as the Californians were recently reminded with the water shortages, but urban life, civilization, creates the illusion of insulation from this risk. And I think that's why we have a hard time understanding the risk that the Bible is pushing us toward in both the Old and New Testament. The Bible is full of suspicion towards cities and those who live in cities. The best example is the shepherd, the one who is out among the elements and completely dependent on what God and nature provide for him. As thou knowest not what is the way of the wind, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the work of God who doeth all. God sets eternity in man's heart, but man can't grasp it. This has been a major theme in this text. The worship of Baal in the Old Testament always, always pertained, or very often pertained, to the control of the weather, because this was a major anxiety. And he's just saying, look, biblical faith is not about worshiping a God in order to gain control over these things. Biblical faith is about trusting God and accepting that he has control and you don't. And this can lead to some of the boredom that listeners have felt because we feel bored when we feel that we should be doing something. What can I do? What should I be doing? In many cases, there's nothing you can do. In some cases, you go and you sow, but that's all you can do. Sometimes you eat, and that's all you can do. And this text keeps reminding us that there's so much that you have no control over. A listener can easily roll their eyes and say, well, what's this text want me to do? Evidently, it doesn't want me to do very much. And this is frustrating to human beings, especially Americans, because we're supposed to be out there controlling our own destiny. And the text keeps reminding us there is a destiny that goes beyond your comprehension, let alone your control. I mean, think about verse 5 in context of the modern ultrasound. What do you really gain by doing an ultrasound? Perhaps you get some insight into health risks, but you can't remove the health risks. Even seeing what's happening with the child doesn't give you any control over the growth of that child in the womb. When my wife was pregnant, we didn't want a triple screen. If there's a genetic problem, that's how it's going to be. And we had to tell the doctor seven times, no, we don't want a triple screen because it's not going to do anything. We're not going to learn anything. And so we elected not to do it, but it took a lot of convincing to the doctor because the doctor wants to know, what's the doctor going to be able to do about it? Well, they're going to be able to observe the wind and regard the clouds. But when it's time for the baby to be born, you just have the baby and then you work from there. Anyone who's been around someone who's terminally ill knows that doctors are just terrible at telling the truth to themselves. It's not that they can't give bad news, although some doctors are better at that kind of honesty than others. The problem with doctors is that they are trained to believe in their power to solve your problem. And the reality is the vast majority of issues that you bring to the hospital, they can't solve. There is no silver bullet. The Star Trek medical lab is fiction. It's a figment of our imagination that is very useful for the medical industry because they're able to sell expensive therapies, often therapies that are wasteful, based on our fear of death and based on the illusion of their power. This is the myth of our society that we give doctors the power to control life and death, and doctors act as if they have control over life and death. They don't. So the whole system falls apart with that very statement. 
they don't control life and death. They control a little bit of healing here and there, and that's all they can do. But they can't cure a chromosomal disorder in an infant, that's for sure. So what can they do when there's someone who is terminal? Guess what? They cannot bring them from the dead. There's a tension in the medical industry that reflects the tension in the text, because on the one hand, you can't cure death. I'm very sorry, Ray Kurzweil. I think you are completely lost in space. I don't think that you can cure something that isn't really a disease biologically. Death is a problem for you as an individual and a Hellenist because you agree with Plato and you see yourself a god. But for those of us who are scriptural, we know that we die and we go into the ground and it gives birth to new life. That's the way creation was set up by the hand of God. So what are you trying to cure? But at the same time, I think fighting against disease, fighting against suffering, trying to prolong life, these are not vain endeavors per se. They just have to be contextualized in this wisdom. And I think this is a text that people in the medical profession would benefit from reacquainting themselves with. In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thy hand, for thou knowest not which shall prosper, whether this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. The seed contains all the information in it. So you sow it in the morning, in the evening, do not keep yourself from generosity. You don't know which is going to benefit you. Is the hard work you do in getting food or the work of giving away the food that you receive, which is going to benefit you the most? You don't know. You go fishing in a place. You don't catch anything. You just move the boat along. You keep fishing. Go a little further out. Just keep going. You have the net. You'll eventually catch some fish. You just have to keep going and not put too much stock in any one location or any one action. You just keep moving, keep going, and you'll eventually bear some fruit. If you're fishing... What's going to benefit you more, getting the fish and working hard to get the fish and having the fish to eat or giving the fish away to the poor? Which is going to benefit you more, getting the fish or giving away the fish? And I like this because he even says whether they both shall be alike good. Maybe they're both going to benefit you. So don't withhold either. Don't withhold your hand from working hard, but don't withhold what you gained by working hard and prevent yourself from giving away. You need to do both hard. You need to earn hard, and you need to give away hard. And one may work more than the other, or they both may benefit you alike. Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold in the sun. Earlier he said, yeah, what's the point of even seeing the sun? You know, Better the one who was never born and never saw the sun than the one who saw the sun because of the toil of life that it brings. Yea, if a man lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice in what you want to rejoice in, but never forget the difficult days... Keep it all in perspective. Remember that all is vanity. Father, I've been thinking a lot about this word vanity. I mean, there's no way you cannot reflect on this word vanity when you're reading this book. Vanity is something that has no use or has no value. I think if we take it from the Hebrew, you know, it's something that is a wisp. It just disappears as soon as it appears. And so the goodness and the badness, the light and the dark, they disappear as soon as they come. Life is so fleeting. I think fleeting is maybe a good word for this. All that comes is fleeting. 
Right. Everything just disappears. You get a little bit of light, a little bit of darkness, both of them disappear. When I was a teenager, it seemed like my dad always was, always is, and always will be. But when he dies, you realize, oh my goodness, it was just a little bit of time that I had with him. And that's what you notice. One time I had this discussion with a man whose young teenage son was killed in a gun accident. And he said to me, no matter how long you live, everyone always wishes you lived longer. You can be 13, you can be 80, and everyone always wishes there was a little bit more time. In our gut, we understand that life is fleeting, that there's very little time. That's why we get bored with this. For heaven's sake, I'm listening to a podcast and I could be doing something else. I have very little time. Could we just move on to something a little more practical because this is killing me. I only have so much time. I don't want to waste it. We have this feeling in our gut that it's very short. We have eternity in our heart. We cannot grasp it because we know we're such a tiny piece of eternity. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thy heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Be young, be stupid. Do exactly what you want to do, even though you're stupid and what you want to do is going to cause trouble. Don't worry too much about it. Just live. But at the same time, remember, the Lord is coming. So it's not a free ride. This judgment helps direct our actions and our thoughts in a way that they're not fruitless. We try to do what we can in order to produce the best result. It's very different from the way religious people talk about judgment. You are accountable for what you do, but you shouldn't then be a coward. This is, I think, the interesting tension in this section of the book. Yes, there are consequences, but you should still rejoice and still walk in the ways of your heart. I think that is really helpful, Father, because understanding that it's not pointless. I disagree with this word that we use in English, vanity. Because vanity sounds like it's got no point. I would say that it's fleeting. It's no point for you who are fleeting, but it has a point. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I think, Father. Thank you. I think that the fact that it's fleeting doesn't mean it's pointless. It just means it's short and it appears inconsequential. You know, we have all these cows on the earth that produce all this meat. But every time that each cow passes gas, it affects the atmosphere. And too many cows on the earth mean that there is going to be a bad effect on the atmosphere. And if you think of a wonderful metaphor of this fleeting moment, the gas that the cow passes can affect the entire atmosphere. That's going to be the title of the podcast, The Gas That the <laughs> Cow Passes. I like that. But this is what our life is. Our life seems to be so short and so inconsequential, but what does it mean when we have billions of inconsequential lives? What happens when one of those lives is lived to its fullest? Mother Teresa, who had just as inconsequential life as anybody else, but when it was time for her to go to the hospital in Armenia, she took her sisters and she scrubbed the toilets and she scrubbed the walls and she started on the top floor of the hospital and went down floor by floor. She scrubbed toilets. Mother Teresa was famous for scrubbing toilets. Think of that, just that statement, famous for scrubbing 
toilets. Right. And I mean, then you think of Ray Kurzweil and trying to, quote, cure death and this Google project that he's been enlisted to manage. I mean, my problem, my difficulty with this kind of Hellenistic or neo-Hellenistic philosophy and, and the quest for immortality and all of this nonsense is that someone who's intelligent and capable should be using their abilities to serve the common good. Trying to reverse death for the sake of the elite or for the sake of the individual, even if it becomes accessible to everyone, is not serving the common good. It's actually working against Mother Nature. It's working against the way biology functions in the same way that this over-proliferation of one animal in order to satiate human appetite is having an impact on the ecosystem. I think it's problematic when you seek the needs of the individual from an individual's perspective, it does not bear fruit for the common good. If people are not working for that common good, then it doesn't help. You're just doing your own thing. And I think to try to bring some sort of immortality to the individual soul, like you're talking about, Father, is ignoring something that everything is connected. You know, back in chapter three, life and death, filling emptying, gathering, scattering. It's all linked together. And the link together is what we have to understand. Now, I'm not just saying we need to build strong communities. I'm not talking about human beings connected together. I'm talking about everything connected together. One person's life, which is a fleeting wisp, we don't know how that connects with the kind of scaffolding of the universe that only God understands. Life and death are the domain of God. That is why in the New Testament, Man is not a mortal, but God can grant life to man as he so chooses. In other words, the teaching of the resurrection is fundamentally different than concepts of immortality and eternity in Greek philosophy. And unfortunately, Christians today are mostly neo-Hellenists, and that's their whole concept of life, and they impose it on the text. In reality, the resurrection is put in place in the New Testament, in order to remind you that God will bring unto you judgment, and in order to remind you that the one who judges is the one who has the power to remember you or to forget you. And if he forgets you, you're gone. You are not immortal. You are not a god. You can't make yourself live forever, and your consciousness is not permanent. You are completely in the hands of the Father of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying, and this is why the judgment is so important in the New Testament. And again, it reflects the wisdom of this text that we're reading now. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity, are passing breath. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. You have a great week. Thank you. You too, Father. Enjoy your vacation out there in the backwoods up north. Ah, yes, it's wonderful up here. Take care. just heard the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network